Stirring Times in Austria, an essay by Mark Twain, part one of two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. And now, Stirring Times in Austria, part one of two. The Government in the Frying Pan here in vienna in these closing days of eighteen ninety seven one's blood gets no chance to stagnate the atmosphere is brimful of political electricity all conversation is political every man is a battery with brushes overworn and gives out blue sparks when you set him going on the common topic everybody has an opinion and lets you have it frank and hot and out of this multitude of counsel you get merely confusion and despair, for no one really understands this political situation or can tell you what is going to be the outcome of it. Things have happened here recently which would set any country but Austria on fire from end to end and upset the government to a certainty. But no one feels confident that such results will follow here. Here, apparently, one must wait and see what will happen then he will know and not before guessing is idle guessing cannot help the matter this is what the wise tell you they all say it they say it every day and it is the sole detail upon which they all agree there is some approach to agreement on another point that there will be no revolution men say look at our history Revolutions have not been in our line, and look at our political map. Its construction is unfavorable to an organized uprising, and without unity, what could a revolt accomplish? It is disunion which has held our empire together for centuries, and what it has done in the past it may continue to do now and in the future. The most intelligible sketch I have encountered of this unintelligible arrangement of things was contributed to the traveller's record by mr forrest morgan of hartford three years ago he says the austro-hungarian monarchy is the patchwork quilt the midway plaisance the national chain gang of europe a state that is not a nation but a collection of nations some with national memories and aspirations and others without some occupying distinct provinces almost purely as their own and others mixed with alien races but each with a different language and each mostly holding the others foreigners as much as if the link of a common government did not exist only one of its races even now comprises so much as one-fourth of the whole and not another so much as one-sixth and each has remained for ages as unchanged in isolation, however mingled together in locality, as globules of oil in water. There is nothing else in the modern world that is nearly like it, though there have been plenty in past ages. It seems unreal and impossible, even though we know it is true. It violates all our feelings as to what a country should be in order to have a right to exist. And it seems as though it was too ramshackle to go on holding together any length of time yet it has survived much in its present shape two centuries of storms that have swept perfectly unified countries from existence and others that have brought it to the verge of ruin 
it has survived formidable european coalitions to dismember it and has steadily gained force after each forever changing in its exact makeup losing in the west but gaining in the east the changes leave the structure as firm as ever like the dropping off and adding on of logs in a raft its mechanical union of pieces showing all the vitality of genuine national life that seems to confirm and justify the prevalent austrian faith that in this confusion of unrelated and irreconcilable elements this condition of incurable disunion there is strength for the government nearly every day someone explains to me that a revolution would not succeed here it couldn't you know broadly speaking all the nations in the empire hate the government but they all hate each other too and with devoted and enthusiastic bitterness no two of them can combine the nation that arises must rise alone and the others would joyfully join the government against her and she would have just a fly's chance against a combination of spiders this government is entirely independent it can go its own road and do as it pleases it has nothing to fear in countries like england and america where there is one tongue and the public interests are common the government must take account of public opinion but in austria-hungary there are nineteen public opinions one for each state no two or three for each state since there are two or three nationalities in each a government cannot satisfy all these public opinions it can only go through the motions of trying this government does that it goes through the motions and they do not succeed but that does not worry the government much the next man will give you some further information the government has a policy a wise one and sticks steadily to it this policy is tranquillity keep this hive of excitable nations as quiet as possible encourage them to amuse themselves with things less inflammatory than politics to this end it furnishes them an abundance of catholic priests to teach them to be docile and obedient and to be diligent in acquiring ignorance about things here below and knowledge about the kingdom of heaven to whose historic delights they are going to add to the charm of their society by and by and further to the same end it cools off the newspapers every morning at five o'clock whenever warm events are happening there is a censor of the press and apparently he is always on duty and hard at work a copy of each morning paper is brought to him at five o'clock his official wagons wait at the doors of the newspaper office and scud to him with the first copies that come off the press his company of assistants read every line in these newspapers and mark everything which seems to have a dangerous look then he passes final judgment on those markings two things conspire to give the results a capricious and unbalanced look his assistants have diversified notions as to what is dangerous and what isn't he can't get time to examine their criticisms in much detail and so sometimes the very same matter which is suppressed in one paper fails to be damned in another one and gets published in full feather and unmodified 
then the paper in which it was suppressed blandly copies the forbidden matter into its evening edition provokingly giving credit and detailing all the circumstances in courteous and inoffensive language and of course the censor cannot say a word sometimes the censor sucks all the blood out of a newspaper and leaves it colorless and inane sometimes he leaves it undisturbed and lets it talk out its opinions with a frankness and vigor hardly to be surpassed i think in the journals of any country apparently the censor sometimes revises his verdicts upon second thought for several times lately he has suppressed journals after the issue in partial distribution the distributed copies are then sent for by the censor and destroyed i have two of these but at the time they were sent for i could not remember what i had done with them if the censor did his work before the morning edition was printed he would be less of an inconvenience than he is but of course the papers cannot wait many minutes after five o'clock to get his verdict they might as well go out of business as do that so they print and take their chances then if they get caught by a suppression they must strike out the condemned matter and print the edition over again this delays the issue several hours and is expensive besides the government gets the suppressed edition for nothing if it bought it that would be joyful and would give great satisfaction also the edition would be larger some of the papers do not replace the condemned paragraphs with other matter they merely snatch them out and leave blanks behind mourning blanks marked confiscated the government discourages the dissemination of newspaper information in other ways for instance it does not allow newspapers to be sold on the streets therefore the newsboy is unknown in vienna and there is a stamp duty of nearly a cent upon each copy of a newspaper's issue every american paper that reaches me has a stamp on it which has been pasted there in the post office or downstairs in the hotel office but no matter who put it there i have to pay for it and that is the main thing sometimes friends send me so many papers that it takes all i can earn that week to keep this government going i must take passing notice of another point in the government's measures for maintaining tranquillity everybody says it does not like to see any individual attain to commanding influence in the country since such a man could become a disturber and inconvenience we have as much talent as the other nations says the citizen resignedly and without bitterness but for the sake of the general good of the country we are discouraged from making it over conspicuous and not only discouraged but tactfully and skilfully prevented from doing it if we show too much persistence consequently we have no renowned men in centuries we have seldom produced one that is seldom allowed one to produce himself we can say today what no other nation of first importance in the family of christian civilizations can say that there exists no austrian who has made an enduring name for himself which is familiar all around the globe another helper toward tranquillity is the army it is as pervasive as the atmosphere it is everywhere all the mentioned creators promoters and preservers of the public tranquillity do their several shares in the quieting work 
they make a restful and comfortable serenity and reposefulness this is disturbed sometimes for a little while a mob assembles to protest against something it gets noisy noisier still noisier finally too noisy then the pervasive soldiery come charging down upon it and in a few minutes all is quiet again there is no mob there is a constitution and there is a parliament the house draws its members of four hundred and twenty-five deputies from the nineteen or twenty states heretofore mentioned these men represent peoples who speak eleven languages that means eleven distinct varieties of jealousies hostilities and warring interests this could be expected to furnish forth a parliament of a pretty unharmonious sort and make legislation difficult at times and it does that the parliament is split up into many parties the clericals the progressists the german nationalists the young czechs the social democrats the christian socialists and some others and it is difficult to keep up working combinations among them they prefer to fight apart sometimes the recent troubles have grown out of count vedini's necessities he could not carry on his government without a majority vote in the house at his back and in order to secure it he is said to make a trade of some sort he has made it with the czechs the bohemians the terms were not easy for him he must pass a bill making the czech tongue the official language in bohemia in place of the german this created a storm all the germans in austria were incensed in numbers they formed but a fourth part of the empire's population but they urged that the country's public business should be conducted in one common tongue and that tongue a world language which german is however bedini secured his majority the german element in parliament was apparently become helpless the czech deputies were exultant then the music began bedini's voyage instead of being smooth was disappointingly rough from the start the government must get the ausgleich through it must not fail bedini's majority was ready to carry it through but the minority was determined to obstruct it and delay it until the obnoxious Czech language measure could be shelved. The Ausgleich is an adjustment, arrangement, or settlement, which holds Austria and Hungary together. It dates from 1867 and has to be renewed every ten years. It establishes the share which Hungary must pay toward the expenses of the imperial government. Hungary is a kingdom the emperor of austria is its king and it has its own parliament and governmental machinery but it has no foreign office and it has no army at least its army is a part of the imperial army is paid out of the imperial treasury and is under the control of the imperial war office the ten-year arrangement was due a year ago but failed to connect at least completely a year's compromise was arranged a new arrangement must be effected before the last day of this year otherwise the two countries become separate entities the emperor would still be king of hungary that is king of an independent foreign country there would be hungarian custom houses on the austrian frontier and there would be a hungarian army and a hungarian foreign office 
both countries would be weakened by this, both would suffer damage. The opposition in the House, although in the minority, had a good weapon to fight with in the pending Ausgleich. If it could delay the Ausgleich a few weeks, the government would doubtless have to withdraw the hated language bill or lose Hungary. The opposition began its fight. Its arms were the rules of the House. It was soon manifest that by applying these rules ingeniously, it could make the majority helpless and keep it so as long as it pleased. It could shut off business every now and then with a motion to adjourn. It could require the A's and no's on the motion and use up thirty minutes on that detail. It could call for the reading and verification of the minutes of the preceding meeting and use up half a day in that way. It could require that several of its members be entered upon the list of permitted speakers previously to the opening of a sitting, and as there is no time limit, further delays could thus be accomplished. These were all lawful weapons, and the men of the opposition, technically called the left, were within their rights in using them. They used them to such dire purpose that all parliamentary business was paralyzed. The right, the government side, could accomplish nothing. Then it had a saving idea. The idea was a curious one. It was to have the president and the vice presidents of the parliament trample the rules underfoot upon occasion. This, for a profoundly embittered minority, constructed out of fire and gun cotton. It was time for idle strangers to go and ask leave to look down out of a gallery and see what would be the result of it. Part 2. A Memorable Sitting And now it took place that memorable sitting of the house, which broke two records. It lasted the best part of two days and a night, surpassing by half an hour the longest sitting known to the world's previous parliamentary history, and breaking the long speech record with Dr. Lecker's twelve-hour effort, the longest flow of unbroken talk that ever came out of one mouth since the world began. At 8.45 on the evening of the 28th of October, when the House had been sitting for a few minutes short of ten hours, Dr. Lecker was granted the floor. It was a good place for theatrical effects. I think that no other Senate house is so shapely as this one, or so richly and showily decorated. Its plan is that of an opera house. Up toward the straight side of it, the stage side, rise a couple of terraces of desks for the ministry and the official clerks or secretaries terraces thirty feet long and each supporting about half a dozen desks with spaces between them above these is the president's terrace against the wall along it are distributed the proper accommodations for the presiding officer and his assistants the wall is of richly colored marble highly polished its paneled sweep relieved by fluted columns and pilasters of distinguished grace and dignity, which glow softly and frostily in the electric light. Around the spacious half-circle of the floor bends the great two-storied curve of the boxes, its frontage elaborately ornamented and sumptuously gilded. On the floor of the house the 425 desks 
radiate fanwise from the president's tribune. The galleries are crowded on this particular evening, for word has gone about that the Ausgleich is before the house, that the president, Ritter von Abrahamowitz, has been throttling the rules, the opposition are in an inflammable state in consequence, and that the night session is likely to be of an exciting sort. The gallery guests are fashionably dressed, and the finery of the women makes a bright and pretty show under the strong electric light. But down on the floor there is no costumery. The deputies are dressed in day clothes. Some of the clothes need and trim, others not. There may be three members in evening dress, but not more. There are several Catholic priests in their long black gowns and with crucifixes hanging from their necks. No member wears his hat. One may see by these details that the aspects are not those of an evening sitting of an English House of Commons, but rather those of a sitting of our House of Representatives. In his high place sits the President Abrahamowitz, object of the opposition's limitless hatred. He is sunk back into the depths of his armchair and has his chin down. He brings the ends of his spread fingers together in front of his breast and reflectively taps them together with the air of one who would like to begin business but must wait and be as patient as he can. It makes you think of Richelieu. Now and then he swings his head up to the left or to the right and answers something which someone has bent down to say to him. Then he taps his fingers again. He looks tired and maybe a trifle harassed. He is a gray-haired, long, slender man with colorless long face, which in repose suggests a death mask, but when not in repose is tossed and rippled by a turbulent smile which washes this way and that and is not easy to keep up with. A pious smile, a holy smile, a saintly smile, a deprecating smile, a beseeching and supplicating smile, and when it is at work the large mouth opens and the flexible lips crumble and unfold and crumple again and move around in a genial, persuasive, and angelic way and expose large glimpses of the teeth, and that interrupts the sacredness of the smile and gives it momentarily a mixed worldly and political and satanic cast. It is a most interesting face to watch. And then the long hands and the body, they furnish great and frequent help to the face in the business of adding to the force of the statesman's words. To change the tense, at the time of which I have just been speaking, the crowd in the galleries were gazing at the stage and the pit with rapt interest and expectancy. One half of the great fan of desks was in effect empty vacant, and the other half several hundred members were bunched and jammed together as solidly as the bristles in a brush, and they also were waiting and expecting. Presently the chair delivered this utterance. Dr. Lecker has the floor. Then burst out such another wild and frantic and deafening clamor as has not been heard on this planet since the last time the Comanches surprised a white settlement at midnight yells from the left counter yells from the right explosions of yells from all sides at once and all the air sawed and pawed and clawed and cloven by a writhing confusion of gesturing arms and hands out of the midst of this thunder and turmoil and tempest rose dr lecher 
serene and collected, and the providential length of him enabled his head to show out above it. He began his twelve-hour speech. At any rate, his lips could be seen to move, and that was evidence. On high sat the president imploring order, with his long hands put together as in prayer, and his lips visibly but not hearably speaking. At intervals he grasped his bell and swung it up and down with vigor, adding its keen clamor to the storm weltering there below. Dr. Lecher went on with his pantomime speech, contented, untroubled. Here and there, and now and then, powerful voices burst out above the din and delivered an ejaculation that was heard. Then the din ceased for a moment or two and gave opportunity to hear what the chair might answer. Then the noise broke out again. Apparently the president was being charged with all sorts of illegal exercises of power in the interests of the right, the government side. Among these, with arbitrarily closing an order of business before it was finished, with an unfair distribution of the right to the floor, with refusal of the floor, upon quibble and protest to members entitled to it, with stopping a speaker's speech upon quibble and protest, and with other transgressions of the rules of the house. One of the interrupters who made himself heard was a young fellow, of slight build and neat dress, who stood a little apart from the solid crowd and leaned negligently, with folded arms and feet crossed, against a desk. Trim and handsome, strong face and thin features, black hair roughed up, parsimonious mustache, resonant great voice of good tone and pitch. It is Wolf, capable and hospitable with sword and pistol, fighter of the recent duel with Count Baldini, the head of the government. He shot Baldini through the arm, and then walked over in the politest way and inspected his game, shook hands, expressed regret and all that, out of him came early this thundering peal audible above the storm. I demand the floor. I wish to offer a motion. In the sudden lull which followed, the president answered, Dr. Lecher has the floor. Wolf, I move the close of the sitting. The president, Representative Lecher has the floor. A stormy outburst from the left, that is, the opposition. Wolf, I demand the floor for the introduction of a formal motion. Mr. President, are you going to grant it or not? There was a crash of approval on the left. I will keep on demanding the floor till I get it. The President, I call Representative Wolf to order. Dr. Lecher has the floor. Wolf. Mr. President, are you going to observe the rules of this house? Tempest of applause and confused ejaculations from the left, a boom and roar which long endured and stopped all business for the time being. Dr. von Pessler, by the rules, motions are in order, and the chair must put them to the vote. For answer, the President, who is a Pole, I make this remark in passing, began to jangle his bell with energy at the moment that wild pandemonium of voices burst out again. Wolf, hearable above the storm, Mr. President, I demand the floor. We intend to find out here and now which is the hardest, 
a Pole's skull, or a German's. This brought out a perfect cyclone of satisfaction from the left. In the midst of it, someone again moved an adjournment. The president blandly answered that Dr. Lecker had the floor, which was true, and he was speaking, too, calmly, earnestly, and argumentatively and the official stenographers had left their places and were at his elbows taking down his words, he leaning and orating into their ears, a most curious and interesting scene. Dr. von Pressler to the chair. Do not drive us to extremities. The tempest burst out again, yells of approval from the left, cat calls and ironical laughter from the right, at this point, a new and most effective noisemaker was pressed into service. Each desk has an extension, consisting of a removable board 18 inches long, 6 wide, and a half inch thick. A member pulled one of these out and began to belabor the top of his desk with it. Instantly, the other members followed suit, and perhaps you can imagine the result. Of all conceivable rackets, it is the most ear-splitting intolerable and altogether fiendish the persecuted president leaned back in his chair closed his eyes clasped his hands in his lap and a look of pathetic resignation crept over his long face it is the way a country schoolmaster used to look in days long past when he had refused his school a holiday and it had risen against him in ill-mannered riot and violence and insurrection twice a motion to adjourn had been offered, a motion always in order in other houses, and doubtless so in this one also. The president had refused to put these motions. By consequence, he was not in a pleasant place now, and was having a right hard time. Votes upon motions, whether carried or defeated, could make endless delay and postpone the Ausgleich to the next century. In the midst of these sorrowful circumstances, in this hurricane of yells and screams and satanic clatter of desk boards, Representative Dr. Kronewetter unfeelingly reminds the chair that a motion has been offered and adds, Say yes or no. What do you sit there for and give no answer? The President, after I have given a speaker the floor, I cannot give it to another. After Dr. Lecher is through, I will put your motion storm of indignation from the left wolf to the chair thunder and lightning look at the rule governing the case kronewetter i move the close of the sitting and i demand the a's and no's dr lecker mr president have i the floor the president you have the floor wolf to the chair in a stentorian voice which cleaves its way through the storm it is by such brutalities as these that you drive us to extremities. Are you waiting till someone shall throw into your face the word that shall describe what you are bringing about? A tempest of insulted fury from the right. Is that what you are waiting for, old greyhead? Long-continued clatter of desk boards from the left, with shouts of the vote, the vote. An ironical shout from the right. Wolf is boss. Wolf keeps demanding the floor for his motion. At length, the president, I call Representative Wolf to order. Your conduct is unheard of, sir. You forget that you are in Parliament. You must remember where you are, sir. 
Applause from the right. Dr. Lecker is still peacefully speaking. The stenographers listening at his lips. Wolf, banging on his chair with his desk board. I demand the floor for my motion. I won't stand this trampling of the rules underfoot. No, not if I die for it. I will never yield. You have got to stop me by force. Have I the floor? The President. Representative Wolf, what kind of behavior is this? I call you to order again. You should have some regard for your dignity. Dr. Lecker speaks on. Wolf turns upon him with an offensive innuendo. Dr. Lecker. Mr. Wolf, I beg you to refrain from that sort of suggestions. A storm of hand-clapping comes from the right. This was applause from the enemy, for Lecker himself, like Wolf, was an obstructionist. Wolf growls to Lecker. You can scribble that applause in your album. The President. Once more I call Representative Wolf to order. Do not forget that you are a representative, sir. Wolf slam-banging with his desk-board. I will force this matter. Are you going to grant me the floor or not? And still the sergeant of arms did not appear. It was because there wasn't any. It is a curious thing, but the chair has no effectual means of compelling order. After some more interruptions, Wolf, banging with his board, I demand the floor. I will not yield. The president I have no recourse against Representative Wolf. In the presence of behavior like this, it is to be regretted that such is the case. A shout from the right. Throw him out. It is true he had no effective recourse. He had an official called an ordiner, whose help he could invoke in desperate cases. But apparently the ordiner is only a persuader, not a compeller. Apparently he is a sergeant-at-arms who is not loaded. A good enough gun to look at, but not valuable for business. For another twenty or thirty minutes, Wolf ran on, banging with his board and demanding his rights. Then at last the weary president threatened to summon the dread order-maker. But both his manner and words were reluctant. Evidently it grieved him to have to resort to this dire extremity. He said to Wolf, If this goes on, I shall feel obliged to summon the ordiner and beg him to restore order in the house wolf i'd like to see you do it suppose you fetch a few policemen too there's a great tumult are you going to put my motion to adjourn or not dr lecker continues his speech wolf accompanies him with his board clatter the president dispatches the ordiner dr lang himself a deputy, on his order-restoring mission. Wolf, with his board uplifted for defense, confronts the ordiner with a remark which Boss Tweed might have translated into, Now let's see what you're going to do about it. Noise and tumult all over the house. Wolf stands upon his rights and says he will maintain them till he is killed in his tracks. He then resumes his banging. The president jangles his bell, begs for order, and the rest of the house augments the racket as best it can. Wolf, I require an adjournment, because I find myself personally threatened. Laughter comes from the right. Not that I fear for myself, I am only anxious, but what will happen to the man who touches me? The ordiner, I am not going to fight with you. 
Nothing came of the efforts of the angel of peace, and he presently melted out of the scene and disappeared. Wolf went on with his noise and with his demands, that he be granted the floor, resting his board at intervals to discharge criticism and epithets at the chair. Once he reminded the chairman of his violated promise to grant him, Wolf, the floor, and said, Whence I came, we call promise-breakers rascals, and he advised the chairman to take his conscience to bed with him and use it as a pillow. Another time he said that the chair was making itself ridiculous before all Europe. In fact, some of Wolf's language was almost unparliamentary. By and by he struck the idea of beating out a tune with his board. Later he decided to stop asking for the floor and to confer it upon himself. And so he and Dr. Lecker now spoke at the same time, and mingling their speeches with the other noises, and nobody heard either of them. Wolf rested himself now and then from speech-making by reading, in his clarion voice, from a pamphlet. I will explain that Dr. Lecker was not making a twelve-hour speech for pastime, but for an important purpose. It was the government's intention to push the Ausgleich through its parliamentary stages in one sitting, for which it was the order of the day, and then by vote refer it to a select committee. It was the majority's scheme, as charged by the opposition, to drown debate upon the bill by pure noise, and drown it out, and stop it. The debate being thus ended, the vote upon the reference would follow with a victory for the government, but in the government's calculations had not entered the possibility of a single-barreled speech which could occupy the entire time limit of the setting and also get itself delivered in spite of all the noise. Goliath was not expecting David, but David was there, and during twelve hours he tranquilly pulled statistical, historical, and argumentative pebbles out of his script and slung them at the giant. And when he was done, he was victor, and the day was saved. In the English house, an obstructionist has held the floor with Bible readings and other outside matters, but Dr. Lecker could not have that restful and recuperative privilege. He must confine himself strictly to the subject before the house. More than once, when the president could not hear him because of the general tumult, he sent persons to listen and report as to whether the orator was speaking to the subject or not. The subject was a peculiarly difficult one, and it would have troubled any other deputy to stick to it three hours without exhausting his ammunition, because it required a vast and intimate knowledge, detailed and particularized knowledge, of the commercial, railroading, financial, and international banking relations existing between two great sovereignties, Hungary and the Empire. But Dr. Lecker is president of the Board of Trade of his city of Brunn, and was master of the situation. His speech was not formally prepared. He had a few notes jotted down for his guidance. He had his facts in his head. His heart was in his work, and for twelve hours he stood there, undisturbed by the clamor around him, and with grace and ease and confidence poured out the riches of his mind in closely reasoned arguments, clothed in eloquent and faultless phrasing. He is a young man of thirty-seven. He is tall and well-proportioned, and has cultivated and fortified his muscle by mountain-climbing. If he were a little handsomer, 
he would sufficiently reproduce for me the Chauncey Depew of the great New England dinner nights of some years ago. He has Depew's charm of manner and graces of language and delivery. There was but one way for Dr. Lecher to hold the floor. He must stay on his legs. If he should sit down to rest for a minute, the floor would be taken from him by the enemy in the chair. When he had been talking three or four hours, he himself proposed an adjournment in order that he might get some rest from his wearing labors. But he limited his motion with the condition that if it was lost, he should be allowed to continue his speech, and if it carried, he should have the floor at the next sitting. Wolf was now appeased, and withdrew his thousand times offered motion, and Dr. Lecker's was voted upon and lost. So he went on speaking. By one o'clock in the morning, excitement and noise-making had tired out nearly everybody but the orator. Gradually the seats on the right underwent depopulation. The occupants had slipped out to the refreshment rooms to eat and drink, or to the corridors to chat. Someone remarked that there was no longer a quorum present, and moved a call of the house. The chair, vice-president Dr. Kremartz, refused to put it to a vote. There was a small dispute over the legality of this ruling, but the chair held its ground. The left remained on the battlefield to support their champion. He went steadily on with his speech, and always it was strong, virile, felicitous, and to the point. He was earning applause, and this enabled his party to turn that fact to account. Now and then they applauded him a couple of minutes on a stretch, and during that time he could stop speaking and rest his voice without having the floor taken from him. At quarter to two, a member of the left demanded that Dr. Lecher be allowed recess for rest, and said that the chairman was heartless. Dr. Lecher himself asked for ten minutes. The chair allowed him five. Before the time had run out, Dr. Lecher was on his feet again. Wolf burst out again with a motion to adjourn, refused by the chair. Wolf said the whole parliament wasn't worth a pinch of powder. The chair retorted that this was true in a case where a single member was able to make all parliamentary business impossible. Dr. Lecker continued his speech. The members of the majority went out by detachments from time to time and took naps upon sofas in the reception rooms and also refreshed themselves with food and drink in quantities nearly unbelievable. But the minority stayed loyally by their champion. Some distinguished deputies of the majority stayed with him, too, compelled thereto by admiration of his great performance. When a man has been speaking for eight hours, is it conceivable that he can still be interesting, still fascinating? When Dr. Lecker had been speaking eight hours, he was still compactly surrounded by friends who would not leave him, and by foes of all parties who could not and all hung enchanted and wondering upon his words, and all testified their admiration with constant and cordial outbursts of applause. Surely this was triumph without precedent in history. During the twelve-hour effort, friends brought to the orator three glasses of wine, four cups of coffee, one glass of beer, a most stingy reinforcement of his wasting tissues, but the hostile chair would permit no addition to it. But no matter, the chair could not beat that man. He was a garrison holding a fort, 
and was not to be starved out. When he had been speaking for eight hours, his pulse was seventy-two. When he had spoken for twelve, it was one hundred. He finished his long speech in these terms, as nearly as a permissibly free translation can convey them. I will now hasten to close my examination of the subject. I conceive that we of the left have made it clear to the honorable gentlemen of the other side of the house that we are stirred by no intemperate enthusiasm for this measure in its present shape. What we require and shall fight for with all awful weapons is a formal, comprehensive, and definitive solution and settlement of these vexed matters. We desire restoration of the earlier condition of things the cancellation of all this incapable government's pernicious trades with Hungary, and release from the sorry burden of the Bedini ministry. I voice the hope. I know not if it will be fulfilled. I voice the deep and sincere and patriotic hope that the committee into whose hands this bill will eventually be committed will take its stand upon high ground and will return the Ausgleich Professorium to this house in a form which shall make it the protector and promoter alike of the great interest involved in the honor of our fatherland. After a pause, turning toward the government benches, but in any case, gentlemen of the majority, make sure of this. Henceforth, as before, you will find us at our post. The Germans of Austria will neither surrender nor die. Then burst a storm of applause which rose and fell, rose and fell, burst out again and again and again, explosion after explosion, hurricane after hurricane, with no apparent promise of ever coming to an end. And meantime, the whole left was surging and weltering about the champion, all bent upon wringing his hand and congratulating him and glorifying him. Finally he got away and went home and ate five loaves and twelve baskets of fishes read the morning papers, slept three hours, took a short drive, then returned to the house and set out the rest of the thirty-three-hour session. To merely stand up in one spot twelve hours on a stretch is a feat which very few men could achieve. To add to the task the utterance of a hundred thousand words would be beyond the possibilities of the most of those few. To superimpose the requirement that the words should be put into the form of a compact, coherent, and symmetrical oration would possibly rule out the rest of the few, bar Dr. Lecker. End of Stirring Times in Austria by Mark Twain, Part 1 of 2